In the beginning of the meeting, as you know, I taught on quite a few doctrinal issues, those things having to do with the foundation of the church. And last night I told you, as I was talking about our personal finances, I was turning to meddling. Well, that was really nothing compared to the meddling I intend to do tonight with the topic before us on our families. I've started preaching on this subject at least once during the gospel meetings that I hold. And as I begin this sermon tonight, I'll, I'll just say I, I won't say a thing tonight that I haven't said all over the country. And so if, if, you, if you think I'm saying something just because you're here, that's, that's really not the case. And uh, I've had people say, well, were you singling me out? And I'll say to them, who are you? And uh, I, I often don't know people's situations, but I do believe that as the family goes, so goes the church. And if our families are as they should be, and if we are who we should be in our families, then the church will have a very high likelihood of being successful in a community. But it does not work when we who are members of the Lord's church live publicly pious lives and private vile lives. That just doesn't work. It never has. It never will. God intends to legislate to us not only when we are together, but also in our very, very private lives. And so we end up with some things that are necessary that I will be the first to admit quite uncomfortable to discuss. Now, so some of you know that my wife Cassie is coming down. Lord willing, she'll be traveling down tonight. And you'll notice I'm talking on this subject before she gets here. Um, I, that's just the way it worked out. Uh, but she tells me after I preach a sermon on the family, I'm always nicer to her than I was before. I, I didn't realize that, but you might say, I need this too. Okay, let's just say that. I need that too. And I realize, you know, if you, if you point one finger at somebody else, you've always got more pointing back at you. So understand, when it comes to things of the family, I am a husband, I am a father. In fact, I'm thrilled that my daughter Lori and her husband Justin and grandchildren Kellen and Olivia are here tonight. So I am a father, a grandfather, a husband. And so I am in these roles in my life. And they're not always easy. They're not always easy at all. And some of you tonight, in your family situation, you'll be saying things have never been better than they are right now. And I am so glad for you if that is the case. Some, however, in an audience this size will be saying, things have never been worse. And I'm, I'm filled with sadness and sorrow if that is your circumstance. But I hope that whatever our circumstance may be, we will be able to listen to what God's will is for us in our homes. Even if it's not easy, even if the word of God ends up saying something that we don't like, um, we still need to listen to it. Even if my presentation of these things is not as you would prefer, hopefully we will be able to see that God's word is still the guide by which we must live. 
God demands the right to rule in our lives. I talked about that early on. Remember, just as when you start a job, there's a boss and you need to know who that is and know what the rules are. Well, God wants to, to rule within our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So we have a hierarchy that has been declared by the Almighty God. We have God and then Christ. We have man and then woman as far as assignments are concerned. And that, of course, is God's decree for each of us as individuals. We have an assignment of who we are to be, and how we are to be within those roles. And we are to acknowledge that. None of us have the right to usurp Christ and his authority or Almighty God the Father and his. We do not have that right. We do not presume that right. It would not be appropriate for any man among us to say, I'm going to take Christ's place. Neither would it be appropriate for any man to say, I'm going to take the woman's place in a home as far as my role is concerned. Neither would it be appropriate for a woman to say, I am going to take the man's place as far as a role is concerned in the home. So we have our assignment as individuals. Each of us, the Bible says, will bear our own burdens. We will all individually stand before the judgment throne of God. And so we will do that individually. We may be part of a huge family, but when it comes judgment time, the Lord is not going to say, okay, you family of whatever name, y'all come on down here. It's going to be one at a time, as I understand the process. Each of us individually will be, given, be giving an account for who we are. So we have to account for the way that we individually have handled God's truths. The Bible advises us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Whew, that's kind of a hard verse, isn't it? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God is someone to be afraid of. Oh, yes. He's someone to be very afraid of. The vengeance of God is a horrible thing to read about in Old Testament times. It's a horrible thing to read about in the end time to come when God will take vengeance on those that know not him. But we are to work out our own salvation in the fear of being lost. We are to be very filled with caution as we seek a path that is right. Now, in our relationships, God has blessed us with desire. And the Bible talks about an awful lot of sensitive things in a very dignified fashion. And while I want to talk about some very sensitive things, I also want to be very careful to be tasteful. I want to speak on some things here and there so that the adults in the audience will know perfectly well what I'm talking about and so the children won't have a clue. You with me so far? Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, For I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God 
one after this manner and another after that. Now, the gift, the word gift that is used here is the same word that is translated having to do with charisma and charismatic things. We, we recognize that word and associate it with miracles. And so there is a sense in which whether or not one has a gift of desire is to be seen as something that is given then from God. Desire in and of itself is not wrong. How that desire is fulfilled or how that desire is not fulfilled is up to the disciplined character of the individual and the degree to which they are willing to obey Almighty God. The Apostle Paul was of such self-control or as some have said, the Apostle Paul possessed a low degree of this desire. And either because he had a low gift of desire or a huge degree of self-control is why he was saying, I would wish that everyone was just like me in this regard. But he says, but every person, every, the word man here is inclusive of male and female, every person hath his or her proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. Verse 9, if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn, and the concept of the word burn there means to burn with desire. And so, the desire that an individual possesses should be seen as a gift from God to be handled very, very carefully and prayerfully and righteously. Now, whenever we look to the Word of God about the appropriate way to handle that, and there's many passages that we could look to, but one of those is when God created Adam and Eve, and then he introduced Eve to Adam in Genesis 2 and verse 22. It says, In the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Now, at the end of the passage there in chapter 2, it says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. You see, Adam and Eve's introduction was also their wedding ceremony. There are some cultures that still do that, you know. You meet your, your, your spouse when the ceremony happens, and a lot of times not much before. And so Adam woke up and he was married. He, the, God performed the ceremony and they were pronounced husband and wife and notice the nakedness was between a husband and a wife. And so between male and female, that is where nakedness is appropriate when they're husband and wife of each other. Nowhere else. It should take a very special reason, such as a doctor or something like that, for that to ever be considered any other way but in the way this has been described. And so, as we talked Monday night about Satan and his influences in the lives of mankind, re realize and understand that Satan always does his best to flip God's righteousness into his wrongness. He always does his best to deceive people into doing that which is wrong. And so today, 
the age of marriage, the age of first marriage is at an all-time high because so many people are now living together without being married. And that age of, of first marriage is higher than it's ever been in, in the keeping of records in our country because of that very thing. And so Satan has been very successful in flipping the concepts of what is okay and what is acceptable. And the concept that the Bible would have us understand is that they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And the reason there didn't need to be any shame in that nakedness was because they were married, was because they were husband and wife. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 gives us a verse that at first glance appears to be all-inclusive. Because it says there, Hebrews 13 verse 4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. The first part of that verse says. Then as a warning against immorality, the latter part of that verse says, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. And so those who are immoral uh, are not being correct in the sight of God. When it says marriage is honorable in all, this is to be taken in the contextual setting of what the Bible presents as a whole on this subject. Because there are certain individuals that should not marry and do not have the right to marry. And of course, there are quite a few Bible passages about those. Now, as you will soon see, I'm rolling about a month's worth of sermons into just a few little snippets here and there. And um, so I, I hardly know where to start on this subject, and you're going to think I hardly know where to stop on this subject by the time I get through. But I think it's very important for us to understand that there are those individuals who do not have a scriptural right to marry. And when that happens in a congregation, it should also be known that those who do not have a scriptural right to marry also should not be dating. Because what happens a lot of times is folks will say, well, we're going to get married. And, and brethren who are leaders of congregations say, well, maybe we ought to talk to them. Well, the time to talk is when somebody is first known to not be scripturally qualified to be able to marry. That's the time to talk. Because this is like, this is like the river that's flowing towards the falls. If you wait until the boat is on the edge of the falls, you're not going to stop it. But if you wait, I mean, if you start way upstream to talk to an individual about their particular marital situation, you will have a much better chance of being able to reason with them. Now, there are, uh, there are those who have never married that would be qualified to be married, and their marriage would be honorable for them if they have never married. However, just because someone has never married does not give them the right to marry anyone that they choose. For example, if someone is, is a close relative, there's Old Testament passages in the book of Leviticus that have uh, definitions of forbidden relationships. And there are even laws today that convey those same forbidden relationships as far as the marriage of relatives are concerned. And so incestuous relationships are never appropriate. And marriage to someone in that regard is not an honorable thing and should not happen. 
those who have scripturally divorced and are the innocent ones in a scriptural divorce, according to Matthew 5.32, Matthew 19 and 9, and 1 Corinthians 7.8, those individuals who are the innocent ones in those relationships do have the right to marry. And I believe their marriage would be honorable if they were to choose to marry and choose an appropriate person to marry. Those who are unscripturally divorced can remarry their former spouse, according to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. Those whose spouse has died can marry again. But again, being careful to obey what God has said, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, and 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. Those whose unbelieving spouse has left them, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, and also those who are married but divorced prior to becoming Christians, according to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 24. Now, as I said, this is running through an awful lot of scriptures and an awful lot of concepts in a very short period of time, and some of these you may be spinning your head around over, but the concept is still this. Not everyone who is single has a right to marry. And so we all deserve to know if we have the gift of desire, we need to know what we're supposed to do with that gift. And someone may say, well, you know, I really do have this gift of desire, so I just have to get married. I don't care what the other rules are. Well, now let's look at this. Let's just take, for example, someone whose spouse becomes gravely ill. Are we going to say to the spouse that's well in that relationship, oh, just dump that sick spouse and go on and get somebody else? I don't think so. I don't think anyone would give that advice. And sometimes when someone says, well, I have this gift of desire, what we do is look them in the eye and say, live with it. There are consequences to the decisions that you have made. This is one of them. And quit whining. Quit whining. Sometimes people say, well, you know, all that happened many, many years ago. And when that's happened, I've said yes, and it's still wrong. I don't care how many years ago it was. It's still wrong. And so, these are not fun things. These are not fun things at all. But these are things that sometimes we have stopped discussing among us. We've stopped talking about them. And yes, there have been problems about these issues through the years among congregations, and I, I mean no ill will anywhere I ever preach this. All I want us to do is understand that if we don't talk on these things, then we are opening ourselves up to anything and everything that comes along in the world, and believe you me, anything and everything will come along, and is. And so we need to be careful in our homes. God has had much to say about our marriages. Are we willing to listen to what he says? Let's look back again at Adam and Eve. Where were they? They were in the Garden of Eden. Paradise. Beautiful, lush, tropical. They had it made. In that very first family, there was an opportunity for a great marriage. I mean a great marriage. Where they lived, perfect. The amount of time they could spend together, great. The work they had to do was honorable. Who they had for friends, 
All of that was consistent with them being able to have every opportunity for a great marriage. Their physical needs were met. Adam and Eve's need for food, reach out, help yourself, pick whatever was there except for that one forbidden tree. Their needs for food, easily met. Their need for clothing, no worries there. Didn't have any, didn't need any. Their, their need for shelter, shelter from what? No need for shelter. We ended up with a couple of ducks in our pool the other day. Just really amazed me. Out of all the pools in the neighborhood and all of the water around Sacramento, why would two ducks pick our yard? I had no idea. But they did, and it was just pretty amazing that they, they picked our yard and they started swimming in our pool. Now, when those ducks came in one night, they missed the pool and hit the house. Thump, something went in the night. Like to scared me to death. I'm just a big coward. Something went thump in the night and I had no idea what it was, but it was them. Well, Adam and Eve didn't have thumps in the night. Everything was fine. Their emotional needs, their needs for intimacy, all of those needs were met. Their monetary needs were met. You know, there was no money in the Garden of Eden. None at all. There was no shopping, ladies. Think about that. No shopping? What does it mean? A life without shopping? Can that be a life? It was in the beginning. They had no need for money. They had a lot of time to spend together, productive things to do with their time, a great relationship with God. They had paradise, and yet they wanted more. Did they have a great relationship? Yes, they did, up until the time that they made the deliberate decision to, uh, to usher sin into the world. Now, when we marry, we have the same opportunity for a great relationship if we want it. We have the opportunity to have a relationship that is as similar to Adam's and Eve's as we can possibly get on this earth. Adam and Eve, you know, decided not to continue in God's favor and ended up hiding from the Lord. And individuals in this life, a lot of times, end up hiding from the Lord in their own way as well. And while they may continue in relationships, it's not the same. Now, there can be a lot of pleasure in this life without God. In fact, there's a lot of places where we could be tonight engaging in very sinful activities, and we would look back on that later, and we may even say, that was a lot of fun. There's a lot of folks out there having fun, doing all kinds of things. In fact, Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, Hebrews 11, verse 25. There's a lot of pleasure in sin for a season. There can be much pleasure in a life without God. Luke 8 verse 14 talks about those that were fell among the thorns and they're choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. There can be a lot of pleasure in this life without God and in our marriages 
Even without God, individuals can have good marriages. Even without God, individuals can have a happy life. But as the Bible says, Jesus himself, Matthew 16, verse 26, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And so let's say we get everything that exists upon the earth and yet our soul is lost. What have we gained? We've gained absolutely nothing. You see, if we want a great marriage, if that's truly a goal, then we have to put God where he belongs in our lives. God can be the difference between good and great. And sadly, many times, individuals never even get to good because they settle for mediocre or less and they never have the joy of seeing what God can do in their lives. Good or great? Good or great? Somebody may say, you know, there's not a lot of difference between good and great. But I do think there's a huge difference. Let me illustrate it this way. If you're traveling along and you need a place to stay, there are all kinds of choices about where to stay as far as motels are concerned. And sometimes budget doesn't dictate that as much as availability. And if you go into a town and every place is full except the one you find, chances are it's really gonna be an experience. Now, Let's talk about those motels that are the last motel that has any place that has a room. Okay, you go in. Do you break out the camera because the room is furnished so well? Do you say, oh, we just gotta have this furniture back home? Do you? Do you just ooh and awe over the cleanliness of the bathroom and the design? Not really. Do you open the window and say, oh, would you look at this view? Not usually. Not usually. It's one of those house slipper only places. You dare not take your house slippers off because of what you might find. Is it a good place to stay? was opposed to sleeping in your trunk, yeah. Is it a great place to stay? Nah, it would never make that list. Never, ever, ever. Let me give you a contrast. Uh, think about traveling to a Hawaiian island. I'll just take you to our favorite island in this imaginary journey to the island of Kauai. And so we stop there in a condo and we go in and we we see that the paintings are beautiful and the room is nicely furnished and it smells clean. And you go and you open the curtains back and the ocean is right there. And so you, you settle in and you get comfortable and you sit down on the sofa and you settle down to sip a soda and to read your book, to listen to music and to be there with a person that you love more than anyone else in this life. Now, is it a good place to stay? No, it's a great place to stay. There's a big, big difference. Do you take pictures of that place? Yeah, 
Do you look it over pretty carefully just in case you might be able to do something like that back home? Oh, yeah. And so there's a lot of folks in a marriage that could be described as that last place in town to stay. And they're saying, yeah, we're doing okay. Oh, God doesn't want us to do okay. God wants us to be great in our marriages. He really does. But without him where he should be, that is not going to happen. You see, our relationship with God must be seen in its behaviors in our homes and starting with those who are members of our family. And this is really difficult. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, again, looking at verse 32, says, He that is unmarried careth for things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And so this says that when a person is not married, they can concentrate on things of God only, easily, or more easily. Now, but he that is married, verse 33, careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. And so the concept there of verse 33 is that all of a sudden having a spouse is having something that it says is of the world. Now normally when we see that something is of the world for a Christian, that's something that's wrong. That's not what's being spoken of here at all. It's just saying that when someone is married, their service to God is proven by how they serve their spouse first. And so, those who are married careth for their spouse, how they may please their spouse, and that becomes their service to Almighty God. Now, we do know that God commands us to love him. He commands all of us to love him. He commands all of us to submit to him. He commands all of us to obey him. But yet listen to these specific passages. Colossians 3.18, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And so, here are some commands, and we talked about hermeneutical principles the other night. Wives are commanded to do these things. Husbands are commanded to do these things. Children and parents are commanded to do these things. And that simply means for those who have faith in God and intend to obey Him, there is no option in our lives but to do exactly what He says. That then becomes a burden, sometimes heavy, to be born. And so, if someone is not submissive, then they are rebellious. If someone is not loving, then they are bitter and hateful. If someone is not obedient, then they are disobedient and deceitful. Now, God wants all of us to be submissive. If I, Ephesians 5.21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. James 4, verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Every one of us individually has an obligation to do that. All of us are to love. This was a commandment of Jesus, John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Beloved, let us love one another. 1 John 4, verse 7, for love is of God. See that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently. 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. All of us are to love. All of us are to be obedient. Various passages prove. Well, why is it then that husbands 
are commanded to love, especially, and wives are commanded to be submissive, especially, and children are commanded to be obedient, especially. Why is that? I think it's because these are the areas that will be the biggest areas of temptation to violate our given roles within our homes. I think God knows where we struggle the most. Now, let me give you a little bit of a history on how this has been a problem for a long, long time. Let's go back to Adam and Eve again. Adam and Eve, in verse 6, Satan tempted Eve. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Okay, the serpent, Satan, talked to Eve, the one furthest from God. He started with her. She was deceived, and she succumbed to the temptation. She took of the fruit. She then became an ambassador for wrong. She literally became a preacher for Satan. Adam knew that. I've always wondered what would have happened had Adam stopped and said, wait a minute. And then had he asked God, God, there's something wrong with this one. I've got more ribs. Let's try again. Didn't happen, did it? Didn't happen at all. Adam, wide-eyed, knowing what he was doing, made the decision to partake with her. Now, where was Adam when Satan came on the scene? I've always wanted Adam to be out in the back 40 somewhere when all this took place. I've always wanted him to just come up on the scene and just kind of be surprised by all of this. Look again in the latter part of Genesis 3, verse 6, where it says, gave also unto her husband with her. Other translations go so far as to say, who was with her? So it appears that there's some credible evidence for saying that when the serpent was talking to Eve, Adam was right there. He was right there listening. He was right there letting chaos enter his home. And he did nothing to stop it. Some seeing that verse, there's at least one book out on that called The Silence of Adam. And the concept is this. There's a very old history of this, that when problems come into a home, men have a tendency to step back and do nothing. Women have a tendency to step forward where the man should be. That's what happened in the garden. Eve should have stopped, turned to Adam by virtue of the order of creation and should have said to Adam, what should we do? She did not. And God forever assigned a subservient position to her and all those who would follow 
in Genesis 3, verse 16, that which should have happened naturally but did not, God forever assigned, when he said to the woman, In sorrow or in pain shalt thou bring forth children, thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. That is the permanent assignment of mankind, and that also is given as a reason. What happened in the garden is also given as a reason why today women are, are to remain quiet whenever the church assembles for worship because of what happened there in the garden so long ago. So we have Adam, it would appear, letting chaos enter his home and doing nothing about it. And we have Eve stepping forward, and it just so happened that she made a wrong decision. Gentlemen, I think our tendency many times is still to step back when we should be stepping forward. The other day, Cassie and I went to Sausalito and took the ferry over to San Francisco, and we were going to ride a bus to a museum. And so Cassie had taken the buses before, and I hadn't done that, you know. And so, so there's a bus that comes up, and Cassie says, ask the driver where, where we should go. And it's like, I get embarrassed real easy. You may not think that. I get embarrassed for people when they're not embarrassed for themselves, like people who sing karaoke anywhere, anytime. I'm always embarrassed for them. And I'm just, I just, I'm just like that. And so when she says, step forward and ask the bus driver something, I was, I was just like this, and she steps forward and says, is this the bus we need to take to get to the certain, certain museum? And the guy said, yeah, come on. Like, that should have been me. Now that may seem like a harmless example, and hopefully it is, but what happens in a home when sin comes knocking on the door? That's what happened in the garden. And if Adam indeed was there, as the Bible appears that he was, he didn't do anything about it. And men, that's our place. That's our place to be willing to step forward first and do things about the chaos that may attempt to enter our home. When a, when a wife is not submissive, when a husband is not loving, when children are not obedient, chaos is in a home. And when chaos is in our homes, there's no way that God can bless us with great relationships. It's not gonna happen. Now, many times life is not ideal. Life is not ideal, and sometimes individuals do things, and there are consequences because of the actions of others, where individuals end up in a, in a home alone, perhaps raising children all by themselves. Those are less than ideal circumstances, and God will bless us if we will do the best we can with whatever situation we are given, but it is extremely essential that we know what our place is in our home, and that we do our very best to attend to it. Now. Whenever we look to this simple little diagram, we find that man is to be submissive to the role that he has been assigned. Men have been assigned the role of leadership, and that's a really hard role. Men have been assigned to step forward when they would rather step back. And women have been assigned the role also of being willing to submit in their role as a follower of man. And so each are equally commanded to submit, one to, one to lead and one 
to let them lead. The parallel is given in Ephesians chapter 5, where we find the relationship between Christ and the church compared to the relationship between husband and wife in the home. And so, as we see this relationship in its beauty and its purity, so indeed we are to emulate those things within our homes. And when we look at that task, that's really, really hard. But yet husbands are commanded to love. And wives are commanded, we'll put it this way, to respect. And this is in the latter part of Ephesians chapter 5. And the concepts that are given here are absolutely beautiful. Nevertheless, let everyone in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence, and I'm saying that means respect, her husband. Now, the word reverence there almost appears to have a worshipful quality, doesn't it? Years and years ago, when I first went to Russia, there was a, a lady there named Ludmilla that likened our preachers to the Russian Orthodox priests. And every time anyone was near a Russian Orthodox priest, they would always kiss their hand. And Ludmilla would come up to me and kiss my hand. And I would try to stop her, but she, she just wouldn't do it. And we told them again and again, this is not right and this is, this is not an appropriate thing. Well, when I got home, I teased Cassie by saying, you know, Ludmilla's been kissing my hand for several weeks now and I kind of like that. She said, well, did you bring Ludmilla with you? <laughs> of course I didn't. <laughs> and, but now, that's taking it too far, okay? But when it says a wife see that she reverence her husband, think of all of the respect that you're capable of giving, ladies. That's the respect that you're to give to your husband. I'm kind of letting silence rub that in. And gentlemen, whenever we think of Christ loving the church and giving himself for it, Ephesians 5.25, that's how much we're to love our wife. And so some will say, but you don't know who I'm married to. That's not what it says. It says, husbands, love your wife. And our excuse may be, but she's this, 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 and this. The command is still, love her, love her, love her. And for wives, whenever the Bible says you need to reverence or respect your husband, you may be saying, but you don't know this man. No, I don't. But I know what your command is from God. It's to respect him. So what does that mean? That means that husbands are to love their wife even when she may not be lovable. Even then after the example of God so loved the world. Wives, you are to respect your husband 
even when he is not worthy or deserving of your respect. That doesn't give any of us an excuse to be naughty. Doesn't give any of us an excuse to get the high nose and, and to uh, just say, well, you have to love me anyway, or you have to respect me anyway. No, 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 no. Notice, if you will, the character of Christ. He didn't change who he was when the church came along. He was who he has always been as far as his character is concerned. And the church glorifies a perfect Christ, the Savior of the world. And we men are supposed to do our very best to live up to that example, and we can never drag Christ down to a sinful level. And so here's what that translates to. If a husband is to be the main leader in the home, then when chaos enters, he has to be willing to go first to try his best to work things out. And then with his loving, respectful wife's help, they together as a team can combat anything that Satan can hurl at their home. So, gentlemen, you and your wife get into a fuss. It wasn't really a big deal, but it ended up one of those deals where nobody's speaking to anybody and somebody has to apologize. Let me remind you of Jesus going to the cross while we were yet sinners. Even if you think she should go first, gentlemen, you need to go the way of the cross before your wife. And you need to swallow your pride and you need to step forward and say, I am sorry for what I have done in this that was wrong. And you need to mean it. And you need to not follow it up with, but you, you need to stop with who you are and say, I'm sorry for this. But what if the wife just won't accept that? You still need to admit you're wrong. What if my spouse is never going to be who they are? Aren't we thankful Christ didn't do that? Aren't we thankful Christ didn't say, some are just never going to get it? Aren't we thankful he went ahead and went to the cross and served for the potential of greatness for all? And so when we are commanded to be loving in a relationship or respectful in a relationship, it is dependent upon the quality of our own personal character to possess those behaviors. We possess those behaviors to the glory of God because he wants us to, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the quality and character of our spouse. And so when somebody comes to me and says, my spouse is just horrible, quit whining, get over it. Love her if it's a man, respect him if it's a woman. Love and respect both of you. Be submissive to God's will. Go back and be who you ought to be. And quit trying to figure out a way to get out of this relationship. And you work as hard to stay in it and be who you ought to be. I told you the other night about Job. 
I meant what I said about it. Does It appears he really did not have a good relationship with his wife, or at least his wife did not have a good relationship with him, complaining about him being still alive, for one thing, and having bad breath for another, and yet he was able to say he'd made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully upon a maid. He was faithful to her, and he intended to stay faithful to her. He intended to do what was right in his marriage. And when God's people intend to do what is right, and they back that up with commitment, even when it's hard, they will be blessed in their deeds. Now I know that I'm talking of things that are very, very, very difficult. But yet, we must first decide that we are going to be who we should be. And then if our spouse never is who they should be, we will still be following in the example of Christ to be who we should be all of our days. Let us not give anyone in our family or in the family of God a bad example to follow in the way we fulfill our part in our relationships. And so, long, long ago, Adam and Eve learned this important lesson. You cannot have paradise without God. That lesson still applies today. We can get to the greatest paradise, the true paradise, but we have to take God with us, and he has to be an important part of our lives. Tonight, I'll stop teaching for now on this subject. Um, it's a huge subject, one that I know is, is sometimes very difficult, very difficult to, to reason about and to talk about and to think about. We'll stop and offer the Lord's invitation for those who are not members of the body of Christ. If you're not a Christian, you're missing the place where you begin your journey to heaven. And we want you to have the right to go to heaven. We want you to obey the gospel as the Bible teaches in faith and repentance, confession and baptism. And if you will do that, the Lord will add you to his church and you can be one of those people that look to God's will for how to conduct your life in every possible relationship. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.